Well, this evening we've come to near the end of our adventure through the book of Ecclesiastes. It has been quite an adventure to see what what Solomon has taken us through from beginning to end. The question that uh, we asked at the beginning of this study a number of weeks ago was, is life worth living? It certainly is if we realize the presence of God, we, that we realize the person and work of God, the, the, the creator who created all things uh, is still sovereign. He's still in control. He's, he's still worthy of our, our praise, worthy of our worship, worthy of our service. He's worthy of our lives. He's worthy of everything that we say and do and think even. But we know that uh, because of the fall of man, man has gone their own way and sought to make themselves to some extent God. And, and of course, we saw that from the very beginning with Lucifer and, and then, of course, uh, Nimrod and Babel and all of that. There's just this desire for man to be their own God because of what was in the very heart of, of, uh, of Lucifer himself. So Solomon goes on this journey The man that had actually asked God or sought from God wisdom when God had asked him what it was that he wanted. That was exactly what he asked the Lord for, wisdom. And God gave him that wisdom. God gave him a lot of things. God gave him riches as well. God gave him power and position as a, as a king, the king of Israel. And while men and nations and other kings sought to have the power and sought to have the authority over everyone else, that's the way kings lived, that's how they sought to bring their own kingdoms about, taking over other nations and all. No matter where Israel was at the time, whether a large united nation or one that had been split, which would certainly come after Solomon, but because they were the nation that God had, had blessed, to be his people. He had become the king just as David, his father. He had become the king of the, great, the greatest nation there was. 
great only because of what God had made them and what God had given them. And with all that power and with all that wisdom, Solomon sought. The answer to the question, is life worth living under the sun? Is life worth living under the sun without God? Because that phrase we saw throughout the whole of the book. We've come full circle as we'll see here in just a moment. As we begin in verse 8 of our text reading it, Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still sought, I'm sorry, he still taught the people knowledge. He still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words. And that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads, and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further by these, my son, be admonished. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment, and with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. As we come now to the last verses of Solomon's journal of discovery, and observations on life and considering the nature of his findings, we, we might be reminded of, of so many tell-all books that have flooded the market uh, over the past 50 years. I know that some of you aren't that old, but uh, those of you that might be, uh, just kind of might bring to remembrance some things. Tell-all books became pretty popular around the time of Watergate, and Watergate was back in the early 70s, 72 through 74, three years of, of, uh, of, of great stirring in this nation. And a lot of things were said from both sides, you know, but it was a tell-all. Whether they were accurate or not, well, that's another matter. From Watergate, when almost every player had his or her say in print, defending or confessing actions done or revealing criminal mischief at the highest levels of government, all the way to the time of the O.J. Simpson trials. Anybody remember that? A couple of you, because you're still in my realm of age. Where practically everyone involved, from attorneys to jurors to friends of the victims and the accused, saw the opportunity not only to give their side of the story, but to profit from it. And let's not forget the past few election years and the myriads of tell-alls they've produced, attacking, admiring, accusing, and admitting sins, past, present, and future. Not their own, but of others. That's usually what tell-all books tell us. And this was Solomon's tell-all. 
But what he told us in this book was everything that we needed to know and everything that we needed to hear. Because if he put the onus on anyone, he put it on himself. And that's quite different from those who would tell all about somebody else's mistakes or somebody else's uh, inadequacies. Solomon, who from the very beginning referred to himself as the preacher, has told it all. Warts and all. False and all. Where he differs from those seeking gain from telling their side of the story is that he has struggled through it all. Lived it all out. Suffered and learned through his findings from beginning to end. His honesty and vulnerability to reveal his oftentimes waning faith while discovering the hand of God in all events, has kept us completely interested, since it mirrors so much of our own lives, the ups and the downs of life under the sun. When I say that, I, I don't mean that all of us have this thinking that, you know, whenever we live under the sun, we're living without God. No, we who are believers live with God all the time. We may at times act as if we're living under the sun. Along with the world, we may make our mistakes. We may falter. We may fail. We may fall. Always, though, thankful that God is one, the one who lifts us up and picks us up, restores us and gets us back to the place where he wants us to be because he loves us, because he cares for us. It's the reason why... Peter said, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. We oftentimes take that, uh, that fleshly aspect of living as a, a believer, you know, the fleshly aspect being, well, he, Lord, I, I can take it from here. I can, I can do this one. I can figure this one out. And we come to find out we don't figure anything out without him. So we try, we try to, you know, that, to live that way. And, and that's where those ups and downs come from in, in our lives as believers. But, but who better than a preacher, Solomon himself, who has experienced both sides of life under and above the sun, could take us through these experiences to their lessons and to their applications. Solomon has brought us, as I said earlier, full circle in his thesis on life proving how complete his work was. Remember how he began the book in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And what did we read in verse 8 when we began our reading tonight? Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. All is vanity. Here is the theme stated and proven. Life is empty, Worthless, meaningless, which is what vanity means. Life is empty, worthless, and meaningless without God. No less than 30 times in the Hebrew text does Solomon use the word vanity. No less than 30 times. And he questioned his own existence throughout. If you're still in chapter 1, I should have said, you keep your finger there for just a moment because I wanted to read verse 3 also because in verse 3 of Ecclesiastes 1, 
He writes, What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? And it is really concluded by, by most commentators that, that this, is a, a, this is an autobiographical question. That it isn't just a question, uh, generally speaking, of all men, though it really does apply to all men. It's a question that he's asking about himself. What profit is a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? He drew pictures of this life. Death in its ugly reality. Life in its doubt, despair, and depression. The futility of work and investments. We covered it all in the book of Ecclesiastes. But we came up to this conclusion, without God, all is empty. Without God, all is empty. Life without the Lord is a drag. Using a good old 60s term, life without the Lord is a drag. We need to make a connection with the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's not a drag. That's groovy. <sighs> Sorry about that. That's cool, man. That's the only cool thing we've got when it comes right down to it. We need to make a connection with the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. How soon we sometimes forget what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, <clears throat> not one man, not one person cometh unto the Father but by me. That is a tremendously confident statement from the Messiah of Israel the Savior of the world. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. The Apostle Paul would also make something of that understanding for us. When he said in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 18, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, where we're living now, The now of Solomon, the now of the prophets, the now of the apostles, the now of Paul. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I brought this particular passage up because of the statements that, that Paul makes about children, the children of God being heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. 
Because much of what Solomon himself had been teaching was, here we have a life where we work so hard and we build up so much investment in life, and then who do we leave it to when we die? Where does it all go? Under the sun, it, it might go to the, possibly the right, the right uh, heir or one who inherits, or it may go to no one. And then what does all that work mean then? What does all that struggle mean? And Paul says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us as children of God, as joint heirs with Christ, as those who have a treasure in heaven, not on this earth. We have to live above the sun. So as he closes out this book, we enter into Solomon's school. And he actually is, is teaching this lesson to his own son, as was mentioned. And he gives two things that we want to look at tonight, personal insights in verses 9 through 12 and practical insights in verses 13 and 14. So we'll begin with the personal insights. They begin in verses 9 through 12, where Solomon says, And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed, and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further by these, my son, be admonished of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Solomon reminds us of the careful search that he made to come to this conclusion and how carefully he recorded what is written in the pages of this book, Ecclesiastes. He himself learned to be wise. It wasn't just that God gave him wisdom. And understand this for all of us. God does give us wisdom. We pray for that, don't we? We pray for that. If any of you lack wisdom, James said, let him ask of God, and he'll give you wisdom without reproach. And he gives it to you freely. He wants us to ask. But in the receiving of wisdom, we also have to Learn wisdom. The Word of God is our greatest teacher. It is the wisdom of God. To have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is a way of, of, of receiving wisdom. Why? Because He is the wisdom of God, it tells us. He is the wisdom of God and the righteousness of God, it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1.
a personal relationship with Jesus, an intense study of the Word of God. It's how we learn wisdom and how we learn to be wise. And Solomon tells us that the only source of that wisdom is, again, the Word of God. And we can add the Logos of God, who is Jesus, John chapter 1. So he learned them more than likely on the knee of his father David. To teach the people knowledge, he pondered and sifted through the implications of the words he chose to use carefully, at times wrestling and sweating over them. You ever had that uh, experience, wrestling and sweating over the word? I, I, <laughs> I have it all the time. And for the longest of times. I've been a pastor for 36 years. I know it doesn't seem like it, but 36 years. And uh, there never comes a time when we don't wrestle to understand God's word. Always be careful of somebody that says that they know it all or that at least they act as if they know it all. We don't know it all. We can still learn, we can still grow. I do. I get as excited when I read the word and I say, wow, I didn't see that. And I've read it a thousand times. Thank you, Lord. He still reveals how wonderful his word is to us. So here's some good instruction for preachers. Like a, like a dog wrestling with a bone to get all the gristle. You ever seen a dog do that? That's what we should be doing. Wrestling with that bone to get everything that's inside of it. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, though Paul doesn't give us that picture or, or even uses the word, what he says is this. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed rightly, dividing the word of truth. Now, I know that in some translations, the word study is, um, is different. But the word study here in, in, the, in the Greek is, is the word spodatso, spodatso, which means endeavoring or laboring diligently, making every effort. Apply that, if you will, to the phrase that Paul gives us. Study, in other words, endeavor and labor diligently to show thyself approved unto God. Make every effort to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's the context. The context is to rightly divide the word of truth. You must study diligently. You must study endeavoring to understand, making every effort to know, making every effort to know so that you pass this on as knowledge to the people that God has called you to speak to, called you to teach, called you to encourage. I'm saying this to you passionately because, <clears throat> excuse me, the word doesn't just stay in this room and it shouldn't. There's a lesson that we learn in, in, in Paul's relationship to Timothy, his son in the faith. Paul taught Timothy to teach others that others will teach others so that when the word eventually goes out, it's going to get to people like us 2,000 years later. 
We don't stop with us. The word doesn't stop where we are. It's got to go out. And more today than ever, any other time that we've ever experienced in this, in this country. Let's face it, we are a messed up country today. We are topsy-turvy. We're nuts. Putting it mildly. Insane? Crazy? A day doesn't go by that something, and I say this all the time, this whole year I've been saying it, a day hasn't gone by that something hasn't just gone nuts. I don't even want to bring up the latest thing. But those things should not keep us from doing what God called us to do. We need to study. We need to endeavor and labor diligently and make, our, make every effort to show ourselves approved unto God as workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He talks about this wisdom and leading to the writing of the Proverbs. The Proverbs that he arranged with great care were used to illustrate the truths that he was setting forth. Nothing was chosen lightly. Solomon's words were chosen to be accurate, and they were chosen to be arresting, you know, arresting our thoughts. I want you to consider a passage that we studied earlier in Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Y'all are familiar with it. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. Notice how clear Solomon makes this. Of course, it is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but nonetheless, how clear the lesson is. A time to be born and a time to die. You might say, well, that's an obvious thing. But there's much wisdom in the way that he constructs this. A time to be born, a time to die. There are realities that we don't take for granted. Or I should say that there are realities that we do take sometimes for granted and not really consider the depth of what they're saying. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what, that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up. A time to weep. And a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Every one of those things is the revealing of the reality of life and death under the sun. Experienced by all. Experienced by the believer and the non-believer, the unbeliever. Experienced by the righteous and the unrighteous. Seasons of life come and they go. And who can forget these words? 
How right these words are. How right they are. To understand that reality of living under the sun or above the sun. He mentions acceptable words in verse 10. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. Acceptable words. Not acceptable to man. We sometimes say, you know, we we try to kind of gauge what we have to say to people because we don't want to quote unquote offend. Jesus said, you know what? You believe in me, you're going to offend people. And isn't that true today? Isn't that more true today than ever before in this country? That just to stand for Jesus Christ, just to stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ in this country can now get you killed. Or depending on what state you're in, it might get you arrested. That was never a thought a few years ago. But acceptable words are to be pleasing and, or, or gracious to win the attention of those listening, but never, never, never is the message diluted or made to flatter. This is the reason why in John chapter 1, verse 17, John says, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. We all want grace, but do we accept the truth? Do we accept the truth? Do we love the truth? Do we live the truth? It's because of the truth. And where we stand for the truth. That makes a difference in this life. The words of the preacher were inspired and given by God, the one true shepherd. That the Lord is the one who sees us as wandering sheep in need of a shepherd's care. And he certainly has the heart of a shepherd. That is, there's no doubt that he has the heart of a shepherd. Isaiah 40 verse 11 says, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. That was a little chorus we used to sing back in the early 70s. And, and folks, that wasn't ancient. I, I, can, I can assure you, it wasn't ancient. Some of us live there, right? How many remember the 70s? Okay. <laughs> well, this is oldies night, isn't it? Sorry about that. <laughs> but it was a beautiful chorus. It just reminded us of the, of the shepherd's heart of God. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm, carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. It becomes more acutely serious when we read in Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the good shepherd, the iniquity of a soul. 
That good shepherd who said in John 10, verses 14 and 15, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. In verse 11, Solomon goes on to say that the words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the master of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. Interesting. Words are like goads and nails. What does that mean? A goad is a long stake with an iron point, which was used to jab against the hindquarters of a beast of burden to prod it into action and to keep it moving. So it was used to get the cattle going. If they got stubborn or if they got tired or lazy or just didn't want to move, they would just sit there or stand there. Beasts of burden in those days, just like today, are pretty big. So it took this rod with this iron point on it to get that beast of burden moving. And so the word of God prods us, prods us to pursue the truth and to act upon it. Now, when he mentions the nails here, as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd, the nail secures that truth. The word of God prods us to pursue the truth, to act upon it. The nail secures that truth. You can hang on it. You can hold fast by it in times of danger, in times of trial and temptation. The word nails down our hope in the Lord and in his promises. So it's a wonderful picture here. We're oftentimes needed to be prodded to pursue the truth. But then to hang that truth on and we to hang on it. And then verse 12 is a warning not to go beyond what God has written in his word. And further by these, my son, be admonished of making many books. There is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Kind of brings to mind, you know, you know, you can get started in a good sense with the word of God. But then to go way beyond in the sense of taking it beyond its meaning, beyond its purpose. I oftentimes wonder why people, you know, write certain books, even in the, in, in the uh, uh, Christian community, as it were. And go on and on, and they'll write books, you know, and, and, and a lot of times... It's a repetition of a lot of things, but most of the time it's, it gives people attention, it gives people fame, it gives people money, you know, fortune, whatever. It can. A lot of foolishness, when you think about it, has been written in, uh, for, in, in the name of the gospel, in the name of Christ. Because they're not interpreting the, pro the, the word of God properly taking things out of context. You can have your best life now. I don't want my best life now. I want it in heaven. My best life now is now because I know that I'm going to be there with Christ forever and ever. 
Not by works of righteousness, which I have done, but according to his mercy. But to be telling people, you know, you can do all these things, you can have all these things, you can do, you know, you can acquire all these things now. I, I don't want that. I want God. I want God and, o- and only God. I want Christ and only Christ. I want the power of the Holy Spirit. I want the, the things that God wants me to do with the Holy Spirit and have the Holy Spirit lead me and guide me. And sometimes if he needs to prod me, prod me. Because I don't want to take another breath without Jesus Christ. I don't want to live my life for anything else but Jesus Christ. So, it's much wiser to test the writings of men by the word of God than to test the word of God by the writings of men. It is not wrong to read and write, but always remember that God is the secret of life. God is the secret. God is the secret of life and the answer to the reason of existence. Take, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. I've I've always loved this verse of Scripture. The secret things belong to the Lord. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but but those things which are revealed, you know, there are going to be things that we don't understand until we get to heaven. Now, you know, it's oftentimes said that, well, when you get to heaven, you can pretty much know all things. Then if I'm going to know all things, then why do I have to go ask Peter, hey, Peter, what about this? What about that? Because people always, always said that, you know, well, you can ask Paul that when you get to heaven. I don't need to ask him. We won't need that. You know why? Because we have one purpose. We're going to be before the throne of God, worshiping him and serving him forever. And we're never going to get bored. And we're never going to get tired. We're never, we're never going to hear anything come out from the, from the throne of God that says, oh, y'all may be seated now. We're going to stand before the throne of God. And we're going to cast our crowns at his feet. And we're going to be with the loved ones who have gone before us. And yet the focus is not going to be upon them. It's going to be upon Jesus. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Praise the Lord. I don't need to know what those secret things are. Because the next passage, the next part of the verse, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. What we have been given in the word of God, we can know and we can do because that is what we've called, we've been called to do, the works and the words of this law, the word of God. Add to that then in the next chapter, Deuteronomy 30, verse 20. Notice what it says here at the very beginning of the verse, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God and that thou mayest obey his voice. And that thou mayest cleave unto him. For he is thy life. He is thy life. Bless you. He is thy life. I don't know what else we think our life is. But God is our life. Christ is our life. And the length of thy days 
Yeah, I, I read that little thing the other day that I saw on Facebook. I think I mentioned it on Saturday night. I didn't mention it on Sunday. I wish I had. A little picture. Some of you probably have seen it. The silhouette of a girl looking out the window, probably in France, because it looked like the uh, Champs-Élysées, you know, thing out there. She's looking out the window, but the text was what was really important. It said, in effect, COVID-19 is not your enemy. Fear is. Fear is. And then it said this, again, to the effect of what it said. I could pull it out, but I got to look it up. But I do remember what it says. In effect, it says, you, you, you won't die one day earlier or one day later. Then God has already planned for you. And they quoted 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God did not give us Power of fear, but power of love and of sound mind. Didn't give us fear. Give us power, love, and a sound mind. He's our life and the length of our days. Whatever length that is. God already knows that. That thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord swear unto the, thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So... Stay in the word of God. Stay in fellowship with the Lord. Learn all you can. And don't stop learning. Never stop. Desire more of what God has given to you in his word. Secondly, in the school of Solomon is the practical insights that he wants to share in the last two verses of this letter or book. He said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now take those words and just think for a moment. This is the whole duty of man. Doesn't say regenerated man, unregenerated man, righteous man, unrighteous man. It is the whole duty of man, everyone created. Think about that for a moment. For God shall bring every work into judgment. There's going to be judgment for everyone. Remember that there's, there's two judgment locations. There is the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ for believers, believers We'll stand before the Lord for the things that we've done. We'll be judged, purified by that judgment. Whatever remains will remain with you. Paul describes it as wood, hay, stubble, uh, gold, precious jewels. Uh, I did it backwards. Gold, silver, precious jewels, wood, hay, and stubble. Whatever remains through the fire of that judgment remains with you. Bema seat of Christ, the judgment for believers. You'll remain a believer in heaven after that judgment. 
The second judgment or the other judgment is the, white, the great white throne judgment of God in the book of Revelation. Where all men who are not written in the book of life shall have to stand before God one day for everything that they've done. Everything. And they shall be judged. For whether they receive Jesus Christ or not. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing whether it be good or whether it be evil. Interesting that this book ends with the word evil to remind us that we're still living for Christ under the sun with those who don't believe and how we need to continue to be light and salt. But here's the secret to being whole and complete. Here it is, fear God and keep his commandments. The secret to being whole and complete. The book of Ecclesiastes ends where the book of Proverbs begins with the exhortation to fear the Lord. Proverbs 1 verses 1 through 7. Let, let's, let's read that for seven verses. Certainly it starts with an introduction. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Purpose. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, just, justice, and judgment, and equity, <clears throat> for to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and will increase learning. And a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. To understand a proverb and the interpretation, the, wise, the words of the wise and their dark sayings. So there, there's the purpose. But notice verse 7. The fear of the Lord. After that introduction, this is what he begins with. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is that attitude of reverence, fear, the fear of the Lord. Not fear like we've been talking about when we talk about everybody fearing, you know, diseases and fearing COVID and all of that. No, the fear of the Lord is much different. This is that attitude of reverence and awe that his people show the Lord due to their love and their respect for him. An unholy fear makes people run away from him. A godly fear brings them back in times of trouble or need. So here's a good way of remembering what the fear of the Lord is. First of all, take the first letter of fear, F, and think of faith. Faith that he is. Faith that he is. And we'll get to Hebrews 11, verse 6 in just a moment, but consider faith that he is. This, this is where fear, the fear of the Lord begins. You must believe that he is. You take the E of the word and, and you consider experience. But what are we to experience? We need to experience his grace, his undeserved favor, 
learn what kind of God he is. That he is a God of mercy, that he is a God of grace, and that he is a God of forgiveness. Because he is a God of love. You take the third letter, A, and, and consider awe. Awe at his majesty, at his wisdom, and his power. Faith, experience, and awe. And it leads to the R, which is re representing respect and reverence. But it can also mean resolved. Resolve, I should say, to do his will. Be resolved to do God's will. That, that is part of, of that reverence that we have for God. God speaks, we are to listen. God commands, we are to do, whatever it may be. And of course, it'll all line up in his word from Genesis to Revelation. Resolve to do his will. Now, I use the word resolve for this purpose because we don't realize that it is, co it is connected to the word resolution that we use at times at the beginning of a year. I've uh, explained this before. We make resolutions every, every new year. What you're doing is resolving. You are resolving to do something. You're resolving to, I should bring it up, lose weight. You resolve to exercise more. You resolve to be nice to your neighbor. And quit getting mad at him because he throws leaves onto your side of the lawn or whatever. You resolve, you know, to do things. Most of the time we do it for about a month and a half. And then we forget about our resolutions. But if you've ever read anything by Jonathan Edwards, the uh, great preacher back in the 1700s, he had made a list of number of resolutions, and every one of those resolutions, he said, I resolve to serve God, to love God, to obey God. And everything had to do with his love for God, his love for his word. And that's how we need to resolve ourselves. That, that's, that's what it means to fear the Lord, to trust in him, to receive from him, to offer to him, to respect him, to have a high view of God, a high view of God. It's sad that in, in the 20th and 21st centuries, you know, we, we kind of move toward a high view of man and a low view of God. We need to come back to a high view of God, especially now. Why? Because Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming so soon, and we need to be ready for that. But we need to have a, a high view of God all the time. So in Hebrews 11, verse 6, as I mentioned earlier, it says, but without faith, it is impossible to fear, or to please him, I'm sorry. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So we need to keep his commandments. I'm not necessarily saying that we need to keep every one of the 10 commandments, you know, in the sense that we 
look at the list and say, okay, I need to keep this and this and this and this. What we need to do, the way we keep the commandments is by receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior who has come and fulfilled the law on our behalf. More on that in just a moment. But if you turn to Micah chapter 6, verse 8, Micah 6, verse 8, it says, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Now, those are commandments. Those are commandments that we can do in Old Testament times, and we can do them in New Testament times. Because we're doing them in respect and in honor and reverence to the God who loved us and gave himself for us to do justly. We're to be just people, to love mercy, to be merciful as Christ was merciful to us, to forgive as Christ forgave us, to walk humbly with thy God. God never called us to, to walk with some sense of pride in what we have accomplished because our accomplishments are just called dung in the scriptures. It's walking humbly based upon the, the accomplishments of Christ on the cross, of Christ dying on the cross, of Christ shedding his blood on the cross, of Christ being buried with our sins in the tomb with Christ overcoming the tomb and rising from the dead, clean, pure, for those who believe and identify with his death, burial, and resurrection. We're to walk humbly with our God. So without Christ in our lives, we fail miserably in trying to keep, quote-unquote, the commandments, if you will. You see, we need Jesus who has fulfilled the whole law to help us. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. This is a, quite a powerful passage, especially when you get to verse 20. Well, let's read it. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And Jesus did. He fulfilled every, every law. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till it be fulfilled. One jot, was, which was actually what the, the, the smallest little Hebrew uh, letter, really, if, if, if you want to call it that, but it's, it was just a little. And then a, a, a tittle, some have compared that to the little cross on the T. In the Hebrew, it was something similar. And he says, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall, not in, shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. And whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice what he says now in verse 20. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and of the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, who are the ones that really believe themselves to be righteous? 
the scribes and the Pharisees. And he tells his followers, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. The question would have been then, well, how can we exceed that? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. That's what Paul told Titus. But here's the thing. Our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. Filthy rags. And to be very graphic, in the Hebrew, it was, a, it was menstrual cloths. Our righteousnesses, it was in the plural, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before the Lord. So unless we are covered with the righteousness of Christ, we shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So with Jesus Christ, we can stand confident in the last days. Without him, there's no hope. Though all things shall be revealed, both the good and the bad, we can give thanks for the precious blood of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Now, understand this. He knows our frame, doesn't he? He knows our frame. He knows what we're made of. Those who don't know him and, and have never trusted in him will face judgment at his throne and be lost forever. I know that there are days and times, and I've talked to many people, and I think we've all gone through this at one time in our own lives. But there are times when we'll sit back and we'll consider our life or you know, just the things that we've done. There, there, there may be things that we've done haphazardly or, or we've done uh, willfully, and, and, and it's, it's brought us to a place of great, great uh, conviction in our heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and we oftentimes say, well, Lord, how can you love this? How can you say that you, you, you're going to save this? And God wants us to know it's not by your works. You're not going to impress me by what you do. Besides, I've already seen the end from the beginning for you. And I've saved you. I've saved you. And so in the days and the times in which we live, well, let me just say there's those who don't know him and have never trusted in him, they're, they're going to face judgment at his throne and be lost forever. But because we have that conviction in our heart, you know, come back to God. Come back to Jesus. Because in the days and the times in which we live, can we afford to play games with God right now? No. Not one of us. And so here's the question as we come here now to the end of our study. Is life worth living? It is if you are alive through faith in Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. I want you to consider these scriptures as we close out our study now in Ecclesiastes. And I went kind of crazy with 
Psalm 103, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's just a good long portion of it. And then I'm going to close with, with uh, 1 John 5. Okay, so this kind of just wraps up where we've been throughout this whole study. Psalm 103, verse 6 says, The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He executes righteousness, you see, for the oppressed. We came into the knowledge of Christ because we were oppressed in sin, oppressed by the enemy. We were lied to. We were told that God didn't like us. He didn't love us. He did all he could to get us not to look toward God. But I'm really thankful as I'm looking at each and every one of you that you look toward God and you're here today. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. <clears throat> he will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. I'd have to say that if he had, we wouldn't be here tonight. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west. East and west never touch. They never meet. So as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. That's about the third time we've seen the word fear there, fearing the proper way a respectful way, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments, to do them. The last passage I want to read, and pray that you will meditate upon these things tonight. 1 John 5, verses 12 and 13. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that ye have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may believe on the name of Yeshua, HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, God, the Son.